0: Well, thank you, Matt and team, for those wonderful gospel songs. hope they were encouraging to you as they were to me. I always make the mistake of singing a little too loud and forget that I have to speak. (laughs) Because I really enjoy those songs. Turn with me, please, in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 8. If you came without a Bible, there's some under the chairs in front of you. Uh, should be a couple per row. I encourage you on this one occasion to use your phone if you have a Bible on your phone and don't have anything else to look at. Romans chapter 8. Um, Derek Thomas, who's a pastor in Columbia, South Carolina, said that uh, if he was stuck on, a, on an island and could have only one book of the Bible with him while he was on that deserted island... He wouldn't even choose a book. He would choose Romans chapter 8. It is a precious chapter for many. And we, I hope, to look at uh, the last portion of it, some of uh, the most loved verses in Christendom, I believe. Uh, Romans 8, verse 31 through 39. Let's read this together. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? Who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's ask for his help as we begin this evening. Open our eyes to see this precious, precious truth, Christ Jesus. Send your Spirit upon us afresh and quicken us, in this uh, hour of the evening, to be alert and hear your word. And may we hear it not just with our physical ears, but uh, the ears of our heart. Press this vast, glorious passage into our hearts, that we may come away like Paul, fully confident in who you are, Heavenly Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is a majestic passage. Uh, Paul uh, makes a a sweeping statement of his confident assurance in God. He's, He's looking back and thinking of all he's written up to this point, eight and a half chapters, reflecting back on all that God has done for us in Christ allowing his mind to retrace the steps of of God's plan to save sinners that he's been laying out chapter after chapter. And then he asks in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things, all that's gone before? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's not using the word if the way you and I use the word if. If it's sunny tomorrow, you maybe will go for a walk or go to the park. If it doesn't rain on Sunday, you might drive over to Nanny and Papa's house. And we use if when we're not sure about something. But this is not the way Paul uses the word if. In the Greek language, this kind of phrase is called a first class condition or a simple condition. In a phrase like this, the words that follow if are assumed to be true. The words that follow if are not a possibility, but a certainty. For that reason, you could replace the word if with since. Since God is for us. Since God is on our side. And then notice what follows who can be against us? It's not that we don't have enemies. Paul isn't saying that there's no one against us. Uh, Some of our enemies come later in the passage. Paul's using a a question, as as he will throughout, uh, to emphasize and strengthen his point. And, And what he's driving at is this since God is for us. No one can possibly prevail over us. It is... A statement of sweeping and majestic confidence and assurance in God. One person has called these verses the highest rung in the ladder of comfort that Paul has been climbing since verse 18. And it's for that reason that these verses are so treasured uh, in the body of Christ. These Verses are often read at funerals uh, to bring comfort and assurance. And perhaps this is one of your favorite portions. And perhaps you turn to these very words from time to time to find comfort and assurance. And yet for all that, no matter how many times we turn, despite how many times we read it, That confident assurance that Paul has seems to escape us. Seems to just be out of reach. So what I want to ask you tonight is how can you and I gain the confident assurance in God that Paul had? And how can you and I reach the highest rung in the ladder of comforts? Well, in order for us to reach where Paul is, we need to look in three places this evening. Paul mentions three different places uh, where he looks to find this competent assurance in God. First, we look to the cross in verse 32. Second, we look to the courtroom in verse 32 and 34. And finally, we look to our connection with Christ in verses 35 through 39. So let's first, very appropriately, turn our attention to the cross, this first place that Paul looks to gain this assurance. It's the cross. He's going to tell us three things about the cross Uh, in the verses that follow. Uh, First of all, he's going to tell us that God did not spare his son. Verse 32 begins, he who did not spare his own son. The word spare means to withhold the affliction or punishment that was intended to forbear. It means not inflicting the full measure of punishment on someone. It means to hold back We hear Paul using this word as he writes to the church in Corinth. Remember, that was a pesky church. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Next time I come to town, I'm not holding back, but I will dish it out to those who have been disobedient to Christ. We hear it in Acts 28, the same word, uh, spare. Uh, Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. These false teachers that are coming, they will not pull any punches. They will dish it out on the unsuspecting sheep under your care. And so when Paul uses this word, he who did not spare his own son, he wants to, us to think about another father who didn't spare his son. Uh, the word Paul uses in, in verse 32, it's the same word the Greek Old Testament uses in the story of Abraham offering up Isaac. And Genesis 22, 16 says, The Lord says to Abraham, uh, here, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son. You didn't spare him. You didn't hold him back. Isaac, we know, was delivered uh, by God's intervention, but for Christ, there was no intervention. No one else could take the place of the Lamb of God. If anyone ever deserved to be spared, it was Jesus he lived a perfect, sinless life. If there was ever a person who deserved to have the full punishment withheld, it was Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. He came only to do the will of His Father. Uh, in John 4, it says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me to and to accomplish His work. And then in chapter 17, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to His Father. If ever there was anyone who deserved to be spared, it was Christ. But it says, He who did not spare His own Son... God did not spare his son. Instead, the second thing we see is that God handed over his son. Uh, It continues, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. And that word, that phrase, gave him up, translates a single Greek verb And it's a specific term used for handing someone over to the authorities. So, for example, we hear Judas Iscariot uh, handing Jesus over in Matthew 26. It says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? We hear about the chief priests handing Jesus over. In Matthew 27, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And finally, we read about Pilate handing him over. In that same chapter, the governor again said to them, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. But notice our verse who hands Jesus over in our passage? Notice who delivers him up here in verse 32. God hands him over. God delivers him up. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. And so the echo of that is in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so we hear uh, one man summarize it like this. Who delivered up Jesus to die, not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. It was ultimately God who handed over his Son. The handing over of Christ was part of God's sovereign purpose. It was a sovereign handing over. Not only was it sovereign, uh, decreed by God, done out of love for lost sinners, it was also substitutionary. Because look at that middle phrase of verse 32 in your Bible, but gave him up for us all. Who's the all? They're identified specifically. Uh, well, this is uh, the same uh, us that's mentioned in verse 31. If God is for us. And then in verse 31, uh, rather, verse 33, they're identified who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The all, the us, are God's elect, the church. And he says this in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's the sovereign purpose of God in handing Jesus over. There's also the substitutionary handing over for us in our place. First, then, God did not spare his son. And then second, he handed over his son. And the third thing we see about the cross is that God will give us all things through his Son. Look at verse 32 and look at, the, look at how it concludes. I'll read all the way through at this time and read it to the end. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Notice that word graciously. It means to, to give out of grace, to give freely, to give as a favor. It stresses the goodness and the generosity of the giver, which in this case is God, and it stresses the undeserving nature of the receiver. And what I want you to see is God is kindly, disposed toward you and I, those who know Christ. His attitude toward us is gracious and generous. Please don't let that go in one ear and out the other. God is kindly disposed toward us. But that is so often not the way we think of God. Isn't it far more common for us to think of Him as stingy and miserly? I don't know about you, but I often catch myself being this way to my children. When I would approach my father in high school and ask him for some money to go out and get pizza with the youth group after church I'd say ask can I have some money and his reply his universal response of permission was oh I suppose Oh I suppose And boy I heard myself saying the same thing to my children Can I do this? I suppose we have this strange view of God that does not view Him as graciously giving us all things. In fact, someone writing a long, long time ago describes this view. He says, Consider that it is the greatest desire of God the Father that you should have loving fellowship with Him. His greatest desire is that you should receive him into your soul as one full of love, tenderness, and kindness to you. Flesh and blood are apt to think hard thoughts of God, to think that he is always angry and incapable of being pleased with his sinful creatures, that it is not for them to draw near to him, and that there is nothing in the world more to be desired than to never come into his presence. Satan rejoices when he can fill your heart with such hard thoughts of God. Satan's purpose from the beginning was to fill mankind with lies about God. So there was an English storyteller named T.H. White, and he shared this account from his childhood. Uh, And he says, My father made me a wooden castle big enough to get into and he fixed real pistol barrels beneath its battlements to fire a salute on my birthday, but made me sit in front the first night to receive the salute. And I, believing I was to be shot, cried. <laughs> How many times have we too this states misinterpreted the ambiguity of life and thought ourselves to be shocked when delight was intended we hold the same view of god but paul tells us god is nothing like that god gives graciously and, and then notice what god gives it says it says who will, he will graciously give us all things all things that are necessary but don't We think in every new trial that God has left us high and dry. Well, He provided last time, but I'm not so sure about this time. What am I going to do? And every time we think that all we have to do is look at the cross to know that God will generously provide what we need. And Paul asks this in the form of a question yet again. To strengthen his point, he says, Since God has done the unspeakably great and costly thing, we may be fully confident that he will do what is by comparison far less. Sinclair Ferguson said, Um, he makes this conclusion, if the Father has given His own dear Son to the darkness and death of Calvary, it's utterly unthinkable that He would now send anything in my life or do anything through my life that was not for His glory and my eternal blessing. That's good. And so we read in Verses like 2 Peter 3.1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And we read in Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, His riches and glory in Christ Jesus So how do we reach the top rung of this ladder of comfort? How can we say with Paul, since God is for us, no one can possibly prevail against us? We share Paul's assurance and confidence in God by looking to the cross. Because it is at the cross we see the unbelievable generosity of God. If he gave his son, he will also freely give us anything that we truly need. He did not spare his son. He handed over his son and will give us all things through his son. There's another place we need to look aside from the cross. My sweat is pouring in my eyes and it really stings. I'm going to have to start wearing a sweatband when I preach. (laughs) It's a very unpleasant thought, isn't it? Well, to reach the top rung of this ladder of comfort, there's a second place we need to look at. And the second location we need to turn to it's the courtroom. First the cross and then the courtroom. And Paul's going to describe that uh, two people in this courtroom to us. The first person we see in the courtroom is God, our judge. Look at verse 33 in your Bible. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Note another question, and you know what he's doing when he asks a question now. It's a rhetorical device, and he is making it emphatic. Who would dare to bring a charge against God's elect? We've already read right above this that this judge is incredibly gracious to us, that he's on our side, he's kindly disposed toward us, But here in verse 33, we learn something else about our judge. The judge of the universe, of all things, has declared that we are in a right standing with him. That's what the phrase, it is God who justifies means. Uh, Paul said this earlier in chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All those who have put their faith in the atoning death of Christ have been declared not guilty. The perfect life that Jesus Christ lived on earth has been credited to you and I. And then, seeing God, uh, and, and then God seeing us in Christ declares that we are no longer unrighteous, but righteous. Because of our faith in Jesus, He declares that we are in a right standing with Him. This is a truly amazing thing. And since it is God who justifies, since it's God who declares us not guilty, since God declares we're in a right standing with Him, the the God of the universe, who would dare Contradict him. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Wow. The first person in the courtroom is God, our judge, who's declared we're in a right standing with him, but there's someone else in the courtroom. And the someone else is uh, Christ, our intercessor our advocate. Christ our go-between. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The word condemn in verse 34 means to to bring legal charges against someone. And we know that Satan is constantly attempting to bring charges against us. Revelation 12.10 describes it. Uh, John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. But even though we know that Satan constantly accuses us, he will not be successful because Christ is at the Father's right hand pleading our case. And so we read in 1 John chapter 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. you're going to mess up tonight. I've messed up today. But this says that when we do, when we sin, however great or small, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and is pleading His wounds on your behalf. Provided that you've trusted in Him as your Savior and Lord. And then we read in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verse 25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always lives to make intercession for them. There's never a day off. It doesn't need a day off, thank God. Really, thank God. During the Civil War there was a young Union soldier. He had lost his father and older brother in the war. He went to Washington D.C. to see if he could get an exemption from military service so that he could go back to the family home and help his mother and sister with the spring planting. He approached the White House and asked for an audience with the President Abraham Lincoln and of course he was turned away disheartened at the thought of his mother working the farm alone with his sister he sat down on a park bench nearby and a small boy approached him and said soldier you look unhappy what's the matter and so he he shared his story Uh, the little boy stood and took him by the hand and led him back to the White House but this time through the back door past the guards and into the president's office itself. And Abraham Lincoln looked up and asked, what can I do for you, Tad? Father, this soldier needs to talk to you. And the soldier was not turned away. we have Christ to go before God the Father on our behalf plead his wounds so how can we gain this assurance that paul has in verse 31 and how can we reach the top rung in this ladder of comfort how can we join paul and saying since god is for us no one can possibly prevail against us we, we share this assurance by looking to the courtroom First, we look to the cross. Second, we look to the courtroom where we see our judge and our intercessor. There's one third location that we need to look. And the third place we need to look is our connection with Christ. We read about this connection to Jesus Christ, our union with him in verses 35-35 through 39. I want you to notice, to begin with, the word separate. It occurs twice in these verses. The first time is in verse 35. Look at your Bible. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then the second time you see the word separate, it comes at the very end in verse 39. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It means, much like it sounds, it means to divide, to part, to tear in two. And notice again, Paul, for who knows how many times, puts it in the form of a question to make it emphatic and to drive it home to us. No one shall ever separate us from the love of Christ. The normal events that God's people experience will not separate us from the love of Christ for example, in 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, the, to uh, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Uh, in all these things, the normal events to ha- that happen to Christians, God enables us to be super conquerors, it says in verse 37. The word Paul uses is hooper nikao. Nikao is the word for conquer, and from it we get words like Nike. Um, and then the preposition in front of it, hooper nikao, is where we get our English word hyper. And when you put a preposition in front of the word like this, it intensifies the meaning of the verb. And so in these normal experiences of God's people, we are hyper conquerors. We are super conquerors. We are more than conquerors. These normal experiences will not tear us from Christ. Neither will anything else in all creation, as verse 38 goes on to say. For I am sure that neither death nor life, again, the events of life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers. There's, there's no spiritual power, good or evil. And, and he goes on, nor things present, nor things to come. There's no event. And in verse 39, nor height, nor depth. The highest height can't separate us from Christ in the deepest depth. And, and then as if that's not enough, To make it fully comprehensive, he concludes, nor anything else in all creation. Absolutely nothing in God's creative universe can tear us apart from Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Even your sin cannot separate you from Christ. nothing in in all the creative created universe that can dissolve this indissoluble union with Jesus we have a bond with our savior that simply it's it simply cannot be broken for years i was i've used super glue and it, I remember when super glue first came out and you probably remember the the commercial with the construction worker who put glue on his hard hat and held it up to an I-beam and there's this guy swinging his legs like that's the best use of super glue. <laughs> and I've used it uh, building airplanes in the basement and things like that I've gotten my fingers stuck together with super glue and boy sometimes it drives you crazy and then I learned that there's actually something called debonder and you it's in a tube just like super glue and you put it on and just like that there's nothing in all creation there's no debonder good enough to tear us apart from Christ, it is an indissoluble union with Him. How do we reach that top rung? And join Paul in the in saying, verse thirty-one: "Since God is for us, no one can possibly prevail." We look to this third location, and we look to our. Connection with Christ, described in 35 through 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. These are the three locations that Paul gives us. Three places to turn to, to gain the confident assurance in God that he had, to reach this highest rung in the ladder of comfort to uh, echo Paul's words since God is for us who can be against us and it's three, three places we look we look to the cross and we see that God didn't spare his son but handed him over for us and will graciously give us all things we look to the courtroom where we see our judge has declared us not guilty and our intercessor ever living to plead his wounds for us and lastly, we look to this indissoluble union with Jesus Christ, our connection with him that can never be broken. You see why Good Friday is the best Friday of all. We look to the cross where God has proven his generosity to us and demonstrated his love by laying, handing over his son to take our place on the cross and to pay for our sins. We can't begin to thank you enough, Father, for your indescribable gift. And I pray that this weekend you would help us to mull over these verses and to think about how great we have it that we can look to the cross. And because of the cross, we can look to the courtroom. And because of the courtroom, we can look at our connection with Jesus, your Son. And we're grateful. And please help us to overflow with gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've done. Help us to see this with new eyes. Help us to apply these precious truths to our worries, to the things that are bothering us as we came in this evening, that we would join Paul in this confident assurance in you that you cannot fail. Who uh, can prevail against us? No one. Please quicken us further as we prepare uh, to take communion now and to remember the death of your Son, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.